Over the last two weeks, as we finished out chapter 4 in the book of 1 Peter, it really zoned in and looked at the issue of suffering, which is probably not very many people's favorite topic to deal through, to deal with, to go through. But Peter makes this interesting turn, this interesting change this morning. You see, he spent two weeks looking at suffering and really asking us, would we journey with him, would we go with him, do we trust God in the midst of the suffering, will we continue to do good in the middle of suffering, which is a really hard question to answer. It's a really hard question to answer. Some part of our flesh cries out and says, we'll do better, we'll do good when things get easier. But you see, from the midst of suffering, he cries out, calls us, calls us to entrust our souls, verse 19, and to continue doing good. And so from the midst of this discussion on suffering, he turns then and he addresses church leadership and and kind of how things are met out. And so we have the elders and then he addresses everybody else in the church, calling them uh, the younger ones or the young ones. And so for those of you who are older than myself, some of you enjoy being referred to as the younger ones. And so today's your opportunity for that. So you're welcome. Peter says you're welcome. But as we come into this, we know that that all of us have various different experiences with church leadership. And so from those experiences, we tend to make kind of generalizations and assumptions of how things are going to be. So last night, I mean, and, and this kind of applies to a lot of things. Last night, Valerie and I go out to dinner, walk into a restaurant, walk up to the uh, host table, and, you know, the guy says, you like a table? How many? We say two. And what's one of the questions that kind of falls after that? You want a table? You want a booth? Valerie said, we want a booth. I did not realize what a difficult response that was. I just, you know, worked in a restaurant, never realized that when it made it to this phase that this was like game time for him. This was the time that he had not been prepping for. It was his first day at work. And so he sat there and he looks at this whiteboard laid before him that is a picture of the restaurant laid out. And as he looks at it, he knows where the booths are. And so he's studying. He's like, you can tell he wants to put us in this booth. He desperately wants to put us in this booth. But as he looks at it, it says, do not seat until. And so he's internally just doesn't know what to do. And so he does this number. He looks at the board and then he steps back. And I'm just like, what is he? Is he trying to bring about world peace? What's going on? I really just want a table. At this point, I would stand and eat. I'm getting quite hungry. And so he, he goes at it again. You can tell he just really wants to put us in that section. But in the back of his mind, he's thinking, first day can't lose job. First day can't lose job. So he tells us, he says, this is quite difficult. <laughs> I'm thinking, apparently so. <laughs> apparently so. I, I hope you don't you know, kind of moonlight as a chef. And if you do, I hope you have a lot more, you know, tremendous more ability in that endeavor than you do placing us in the table we wanted. We had to call in for a pinch hitter. And so the, the hostess came over, and, she's, and then she said, do you need help? And he said, well, of course they need help. I don't know what I'm doing. And, and look here, they can't sit there because it says don't fill until this time. And she says, no problem. Would you guys be willing to sit in a table? We said, of course. And so 30 seconds later, we were sitting at the table, and on went our nine. And so on our experience, our first encounter at that, we thought, oh, no, this could be a miserable dining experience. They can't get seating done well. What are they going to do if we say, I don't want olives? I would like this cooked. You know, how is this going to work? And so as we experience and we look at, we recognize today in church, there are largely three groups of you this morning when it comes to your perception, your understanding of church leadership. And so this morning we have those of you, man, you grew up in church. You never had a bad experience with a pastor. 
Maybe you think about this pastor, and he's this great godly man. He was there. He buried your grandmother. He, he buried one of your parents. He married y'all. He is just this great guy who never failed you. He was always there. And so you have fond memories of this person. And so when it comes to you, any discussion on church leadership is neutral with you. Or maybe slightly positive based upon the good influence of this guy who ministered in your lives. We have a second group. I mean, you didn't, you didn't grow up in church. You really don't have any understanding of what it's like to relate to a pastor, to relate to a group of, of elders. And so you come in with a certain sense of skepticism. Probably not very many months pass, not many very weeks pass, that you don't see some pastor, some church in the news. Oh, you know, he sold this private jet, he's buying this one. Oh, he, he slept with this parishioner, he did this. He's uh, laundering money in the church. He's engaged in all these vile and immoral practices. And so, for you, if, if you didn't grow up in the church, and this is kind of your experience, you, you come in with a decent amount of skepticism. Because you have no experience to combat what you have seen, what you've witnessed in the news, in the media. And so any discussion that we begin on church elders begins, or begins to ask this question of your mind of, if I at least don't know how they're going to be. I at least don't know how the church is going to handle this. And can we just go ahead and say that we have a, a third group? Man, some of you have been hurt. You have been disappointed. You have been bes- betrayed. You have been marginalized. You have been labeled an outcast by church leadership. You watch church leadership fail and it failed very personally in your life. And so this morning, as you sit here, and we begin this conversation on church leadership, it's painful, it's personal. It hurts. Church leadership for you isn't this thing that failed on paper in the newspaper. Church leadership for you is this thing that failed in your life, failed you. And so as you look at it, and you're wrestling with forgiveness, and you're wrestling with, how do I do this? How do I go through this? Can I just ask all three of these groups, let's evaluate church leadership, not on the basis of subjective experience or ignorance, but let us base it upon what Peter says, okay? A couple of years ago, when we began the trek and change in, within our church structure to a plural church leadership structure, it was this tense time. There was a lot of kind of unsettledness, uncertainty in some of our own hearts, in my heart. I didn't know how it was going to play out. I didn't know how things would go. But one of the things, repeatedly... When people would come in and they say, well, my experience has been heavy-handed church leadership, or my experience has been this, or my experience has been that. I mean, we looked at uh, 1 Timothy 3, we looked at Titus 1, and we looked at this passage here in 1 Peter 5. And I always ask this question, if our elders end up looking like the men described in here, is there any reason to worry? And they'd always say, there's no reason to worry if they look like this. So what we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, what we see here in 1 Peter 5 is a picture not just of an ideal, but a picture of a description of a mandate. Do we recognize that this morning? Notice especially that in in this turn and in this connection from a discussion of suffering there at the end of 1 Peter 4, the elders are those in some sense who give guidance and direction in the midst of suffering. Can you imagine entrusting yourself to, to a group of men who cared nothing for you? To a group of men who would just, just as soon rather see you come to destruction, see you come to despair, because they're so busy advancing their own agenda? What we see here in 1 Peter 5 is that person, that man, that group of people is invalidated. They're not allowed to serve as elders. Why? Because their lives 
or, or an incredible demonstration to running contradictory to the mandates, the dictates of Scripture. So if they're not upholding these things, they are invalidating their ability to serve in that role. Does that make sense to you? If they don't have these things, they can't be that, simply put. Do we understand that together? Let's journey through and, and just see what we've signed up for and what the other elders of this church have signed up for. Look what Peter writes. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. And then he turns to the others. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he turns to the rest of the body. And he says, everyone else, you be subject to the elders. Then he unites the group in this beautiful statement. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's journey through this together. Peter writes, and, and so he recognizes that things may not be the worst for this group, but they're, they're headed in a bad way fast. They're headed into difficult waters. And so he writes them, and he wants to strike in some sense uh, a, a level of commonality. He wants to reach out to the elders and show them how he understands the difficult times they are about to go through. He understands it. Why? Because look how he addresses them. He says, I exhort the elders among you, what? As a fellow elder. It's, it's one thing, right, to be on a job site and for somebody to come up and to give you input into how you're doing things. Input into how you're doing things. And so they walk into your office, maybe you're an accountant, and they say, you know, I remember back when I was learning math and two plus two equaled four, and I just blew my teacher away. And you're like, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you um, for that. Or you're a doctor and somebody walks into your office and they begin to describe all the things they found on WebMD and they describe all these things and say, now doc, have you considered that what this may be is exposure to a nuclear weapon and abduction by an alien? And you're like, no, I have not, honestly. Um, What I think you have is a cold. But, you know, moving on. And so if Peter comes in here and he shows them this sense that he's completely detached from reality, that he has no understanding based in their experience, then their temptation would be to discount it and say, well, these are really high and lofty goals, but, but come on now, we live down here in the trenches, Peter. So Peter comes into them and what he invites them to recognize, what he calls on us to see is this is a man field trial and battle tested. This is a man who steps in and understands what it is to suffer in this way. What it is to lead a group of people who are in the midst of suffering. So he describes himself as a fellow elder. Now the next thing he says about himself, he says, and I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Now one of the interesting things we know about Peter is that he did what? He denied Jesus three times and then when he was confronted with who he is in Jesus, what did he do? He, he left the scene. He departed. He wasn't seen there. And so Peter's not making a, a reference to actually having watched Jesus suffered, to actually having watched Jesus die. What he's describing is something that you and I, too, are invited into. You and I, Scripture would say, we are witnesses to the suffering of Jesus. 1 Peter 4.13 described us as being shares in, joining in the suffering of Jesus. And so that when we suffer, when we find ourselves given to despair, when we find ourselves struggling and moving through these things, 1 Peter would have us see that we are all sharing in the sufferings of Christ. 
We're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The difference is, as Peter goes in and describes it, he is witness to. So what Peter's describing is this verbal witness or verbal testimony given. So Peter's saying, look, I am one who points people to Jesus. I am one who points people to the suffering of Jesus. Man, what a great thing he's calling us to engage in and to lead in and to guide in. He is reminding, in some sense, these elders that their primary obligation to the flock is putting Jesus always in front of them. He's reminding this group of elders that this is what life transformation looks like. Make sure your people are tethered to the text. Make sure your people are tethered to the word of God and that in so doing, in the midst of tremendous difficulty and suffering, they might be saved. They might be built up. They might be found secure. This is what he's calling us to. He says, look, I'm a fellow elder. I know what it is to testify to Jesus' sufficiency. I know what it is to testify to Jesus' greatness, his preeminence. And so he's encouraging them. He's exhorting them. Look what he calls them to here. First Peter, over the course of his letter, has really been about, you might call it the long game. He's always been about pointing people, not at this thing that's going to happen next year or next week or next month, but pointing people at the return of Jesus. And look what he does here too. He says, as well as these things, I'm a partaker. In, in essence, he's saying, with you, I'm a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 5. Chapter 1 and verse 5, this description was written to the whole church there. And in, in, in writing to them and describing their situation, he said, it is you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, what? Ready to be revealed in the last times. So Peter wants these elders to recognize that their labor, giving themselves to this task, isn't for a short season or period of time. And their reward, their treasure, will ultimately come to them at the return of Jesus. I mean, this is something that such should be a course corrective for many of us, because I think the tendency for a lot of us is, as we live our lives, we say, I want to retire at 65, I want to retire at 70, 73, and that's only this many more years. That's only this many more years, or, oh, in in this season of life, then things will be this much better, in that season of life, things will be that much better. And so we're these people that always set this line of, and then this is happening, and then this is happening. What Peter does is he offers this corrective here, and he says the thing whereby Christians should set their watch, set their attention, set their focus, is the last thing that will ever happen in the universe. It is the return of Jesus, his glory revealed. You know how many things are changed and transformed when we begin to take our focus off the sufferings around us, time-limited, in the here and now, and begin to focus ourselves on thinking about the glorious return of Jesus Christ. It's transformative. Because we're going to pull our eyes up from looking down at all the suffering and difficulty going around us, and we place our eyes on him. It changes the landscape of all we see, and it changes the vantage point of all we behold. This is what he's calling them to. The temptation and difficulty for a leader resting and, 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 and working amongst people who are suffering is what? Is to dip into their suffering. To dip into their suffering, to become enmeshed and mired with it. And then in the midst of that, they despair as well because they see their people despairing. They can't make the situation better. And so what do they do? They just throw their hands up and say, we might as well all be miserable together. What do they say? Misery enjoys company. 
And what we find is that over the long haul, leadership finds themselves being miserable with those who are trying to lead up out of it. And what does he say here? Over and over, he's calling them to be an example. And so here then, he looks at it and he says, look towards, hope for the return of Jesus. And in so doing, the demonstration that you give to those around you is to join you in that pursuit. In essence, don't be overcome by your difficulties, but recognize the one overcoming the world is on his way. Look what he calls them to here, verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Isaiah 53, Psalm 100 and verse 3, all speak of the church or speak of people in this kind of flock language. They, they speak of, of people as sheep, and, and understand this, maybe you've heard this, and you see the reason that people in the church are spoken of as sheep is because they're stupid, and, and maybe this offends you, and it offended me the first time somebody called me stupid. The third, second or third time, I just kind of got used to it. But as we're going through this, and we recognize that he's not referring to them as sheep because they're stupid, he's referring to them as sheep because of the intimate care a shepherd lends sheep. Shepherds. And sheep are are, are this intimate bond together. The sheep are dependent upon the shepherd. Not because of their stupidity, but because of their vulnerability. Do you understand the difference and distinction there? And so he comes to them, and he comes to this group of shepherds, and he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. In some sense, we see a limiting factor here. And so he doesn't say shepherd the church or shepherd the flock that, that is right beside you. Shepherd them. And so he comes to this intimate union. And in some sense, we also see him speak to the flock. And, and to them, he's inviting them and saying, will you allow yourselves to be shepherded? And this is such a great question to ask our hearts. Because I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to gamble that for many of you this morning, you say, I am absolutely willing to allow the elders of this church to shepherd my heart in so much as they never asked me to do in so much as this private sin in my life never becomes public, in so much as that, I am totally willing to be shepherded and led only if they lead me to this pasture. Well, the vantage point from Psalm 23 and elsewhere is that the shepherd has his eyes on the pasture that's being led to, not the sheep. And so it's inviting the sheep into this tremendous sense of, of letting go and of holding their hands open. Of not being miserly, but being trusting. And because we recognize some of us have been hurt, some of us have been hurt bad, and other, others of us have just seen or heard of terrific failing at the elder level, trust is a really hard thing to offer up. It's a hard thing to offer up. Whether we've been hurt in a personal relationship or we've been hurt in this pastoral and flock relationship, trust is a hard thing to offer up. I think I shared a couple of weeks ago, and I try and always say this in, in member interviews. Just go ahead and, and tell the person, I'm going to fail you at some point. So can I go ahead and preemptively ask for you to forgive me in that? I don't always say that, and so invariably it's going to be the person that I haven't said that to that I fail miserably. And I'm going to say, hey, do you remember when you were going through the interview process? And I, I just went ahead and preemptively said, I'm sorry. And they'll say, you never said that. And I say, well, I'm saying it now. I <laughs> mean. Recognize, man, I am, I am totally uh, human and, and fallible and weak. You can ask my wife. You can ask uh, others. 
to, to see that be validated. We have no men serving as elders on this church who are perfect, praise God. But man, my prayer, and, and I hope your prayer for them would be that God would keep their hearts humble, that they would be willingly submitting themselves daily to him, and that when they do fail, that they would be quick to admit it to you, and you would be quick to forgive them. Is it too much to ask of that? Is it too much to ask that we would allow one another to be broken, to be people in process, some of us further along than others? But in the midst of this process, the process of life, it gets difficult because people in process typically fail. We break down, we make mistakes. And as people in process, we recognize that we want to be gracious towards one another. We're not condoning licentious behavior, allowing one another just to engage in doing whatever the world we want to do. But part of shepherding, part of leading and guiding this group is recognizing too that those who are being shepherded are gonna fail, they're gonna fall short. And it's the loving, the kind shepherd who lovingly draws them back in. And so what we see here is that Peter, in some sense, offers us three pictures of what it looks like to shepherd. Three pictures of what it looks like to shepherd. Look at the first thing. He says, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So there's a negative and there's a positive. He says the elder is to to exercise oversight. Now, have you ever worked for a boss that was intimately involved in all the details of your job? Man, that's frustrating. Like, you try and do something, you're going to go to the bathroom, he's like, is that a one or a two-function break? You've got to, you know, show up, you're like, I'm going to show up at 8.01 tomorrow. He's like, well, I'm just telling you, you're supposed to be here at 8 and 30 seconds. At 30 seconds, that's going to be a rough one. I just don't know how I feel about that. You're going to go engage in, in talking to a client. He says, no, what, what's your conversation going to look like? What's your lead? What's your opener? And you're talking about that. And he says, all right, now you're at a restaurant. Are you ordering an appetizer? You're like, well, I haven't really thought about it. Is, is this fictitious client hungry? And he says, you should always anticipate their hunger, but not too hungry. Because your hunger could be a metaphor for being overeager. And now they've got you in this leverage of, of, of engaging in conversation. They're going to own you and you're going to give away our product. Or maybe your, your boss just, just is overly involved in all the details. Or maybe your wife and your husband comes in and, and says, tell me everything you did today starting from the moment I left you. And she's like, I went, woo! And then I threw a party, and then we hung out, and then I just, I was on Netflix all day, and then you wrote and said you were coming home, so I put the house back together as quickly as possible, and I ordered a pizza. And now you're here. How did that happen in eight hours? Oh, honey, things just fall apart when you're not here. Understand, friends, if that's how your wife speaks to you, she's condescending and you're overbearing, okay? But as we see, he's coming in here, and so he's trying to mitigate against the, the incidents of an elder engaging in the same process. And so we have these, these elders that are, that are overly involved in the lives of their people. One of the things I had when we were kind of shifting and looking at this, I had people that came up to me and said, you know, one of the reasons I don't want to move to an elder leadership structure is I don't want someone telling me where I can live, what car I can drive, or where I can go on vacation. And I said, are you kidding me? Like, am I living with you driving that car and you're taking me on vacation? And they said, no. I said, then why would I care? In some sense, I mean, I'm sorry. Your lives are so important and I want to shepherd you and I want to love you. But I don't have time for that. Like, I don't have time for that. Your mom doesn't have time for that anymore. She's not all that concerned unless you're moving far away from her and she likes to see you a lot. But as we look at this, there is this understanding of an elder. They're exercising oversight. 
It's like 30,000 feet up here. They're not all involved in the minutiae of your lives. And somebody says, well, they're going to be ferreting through my life and looking at all these things. What in the world are you hiding? Are you kidding me? Are you Jeffrey Dahmer? Like, do you have people in a freezer at your home? Do I need to be that involved in your life? Come on now. It's oversight. It's up here. We're not involved in all the ins and outs of your life. If your private sin becomes public, absolutely, we want to be involved. We want to be invested. We want to help you walk up out of that. But how am I to know? How am I to know all these things? And so he describes this idea of oversight. In some sense, it is so limiting and freeing for the elder. He's saying, you're not involved in all this minutiae stuff. It's oversight. And then he says, you you can't do it under compulsion. You can't do it because somebody made you. Now, in Peter's day, likely what he's addressing is that they're almost essentially drafted into this role. Somebody comes up and they say, you'd be very good at this, Patrick. I want you to serve in this. You're like, well, you know, I'm not really sure. I got a you know, family. I'm in school. He's like, I'm sorry. We've got nobody else to do it. It's you. And so Peter comes in and says, you guys can't do that process. It cannot be because you're forcing somebody. One of the things we find ourselves in today is, is, is somebody comes up to you and says, have I ever told you I really see this in you? And I, I really have this sense that this is God's will, his design for your life. He's raised you up for this time. Well, this has its own sense of compulsion. They're not forcing you in to do it, but they're forcing you by way of talking about how good and how grand and how wonderful you are. So you, be, you begin to doubt your own discernment before God. Why? Because you have so many people come up and tell you what a wonderful person you are, and they can't imagine how this church would make it without you. That is dangerous. Because you're beginning to buy in more to the opinion that people have of you than your own heart before God. It could be that God is moving in some of your hearts and he's calling you and asking you at some point to serve as an elder. But if you begin to be more easily swayed by people's opinion of you than you are by your own heart before God, you're beginning to head towards serving out of compulsion instead of willingly as God would have you. He goes next and he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain. There were those in Peter's day, there are those in our day who serve in ministry solely so they can get lots of money. And so they're these hucksters for the gospel. They're pitching all these things centered around lining their pockets with money. And so he goes into it and he summarily just addresses it. He says, if you enter into gospel ministry serving as an elder of the church so that you will get prestige, power, or money, you've done the wrong thing. You're engaged, I would say, in open sin. So he says, don't do it. You need to do it eagerly. First, uh, First Timothy 3, Paul writes, and he says, if you desire the office of an overseer, you desire a noble thing. Notice that's a desire that's inborn, not so that you can get stuff, but so that they might serve God in that capacity. Look what he says here in the last little thing. I want to I zoom in on this a little bit. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In Mark 10, 42 through 45, Jesus just uses the same word of lording over or being overly uh, heavy-handed with people in terms of how the Gentile leadership treated their people. And so they would be overly heavy-handed with them. They would be overly involved. One of the things that, that Peter tells us here is that this can absolutely not be the way an elder engages. Look at what he says here. He says that they are in your charge. They are in your care 
that are entrusted to you. And to the elder, he says that you cannot domineer them. You can't lord your authority over them. This is such a corrective. This is such a corrective. Now understand back in chapter 4, Peter had this list of things that the elders should, that a person shouldn't do, that we shouldn't be guilty of. He says, don't be guilty of being a murderer, don't be guilty of being a thief, don't be guilty of being a what? An evildoer. And then the last thing he said in that list was, don't be guilty of being a meddler. Don't be meddlesome. You think it's by, by incident or by accident that he moves to this idea of, of elders and he says, don't lord your authority over them. He's inviting the same idea from what it looks like from the elder's perspective to be a meddler. The temptation, I would say the temptation is to see people make poor decisions. You put it on Facebook, you tell somebody, they tell me, they tell somebody else, who tells somebody else, who tells somebody else, who tells somebody else, who tells me, I played telephone too. I know you haven't killed anybody, but you might have stepped on a bug. And so as we get into this, and, and, and it makes its way in, there is this temptation to want to fix problems. I just want to fix problems. I want to help people not make stupid decisions. I'm not saying they're stupid, some of their decisions are. I want to help people make wise decisions, wise choices. And so the temptation is to get overly involved and invested. We've moved away from oversight, and we've moved into lording authority over them. Because what you do in that is you step in, you say, as an elder, I'm telling you this, or I'm telling you that. There's a time and a place. Somebody's engaged in sinful practice? Absolutely. You, people of the church, should love those around you when you see them engaged in sinful practice to go to them to talk to them. You see somebody open up a meth lab beside you, your, your primary concern is not that your house blows up, but that they're sinning against God. You see somebody engaged in an immoral, unethical practice, you see somebody sinning, you see somebody not coming to church, your response shouldn't be, let me go tell the elders, let me go tell one of the pastors, they will fix this mess. It's not our job, it's not our prerogative. It's not our role. As the body, you guys should be so closely intertwined with one another that when somebody doesn't show up, it's like your foot not showing up. Imagine what it's like in the morning, or maybe you've woken up and your foot's asleep, and you're like, honey, I'm coming. You're trying to get that thing to wake up. You're trying to, to get it going. It should be this way among us, that when we see difficulty in other believers, when we see people walking in open sin and unrepentance, that it leads us to lean out to them. It leads us to get involved and invested in their life. What it's absolutely not is the elder moving and lording their authority over people around them. Using their authority to, to insert themselves in people who they see making questionable decisions, not sinful decisions. There's such a great distinction there. And for the elder, when they find themselves overly invested in those people's lives who have not asked them to be, they're guilty of meddling. They're guilty of meddling. The exact thing that Peter wrote and said, do not be guilty of this. Don't be guilty of being a meddler. I would say that for many of us, the reasons that some of us have been hurt by elders in the past is because they absolutely disregarded this instruction here and were meddlesome. 
and in their meddling behavior, maybe they sought to do it, and my, my prayer would certainly be that they thought that they were doing it for your good because they loved you. But you can never love somebody well enough to allow a disregard of Scripture to have a good outcome. Do you understand what I'm saying? They disregarded Scripture and being overly involved and invested in your life and lording their authority over you, dictating and demanding you to make certain decisions. You could never hope for a good outcome in that. It's no wonder you're hurt. It's no wonder you're bitter. It's no wonder you're desperate. It's no wonder we see people fall out of church, this church and others, when we begin to, be, to use our office to direct the affairs of people's lives. I'm not talking about sin here. We're just talking about unwise choices, trivial decisions. Look what he writes. The solution to domineering is to be an example. The solution to being domineering is to be an example. And so what he calls us for, if you're to be an example, you have to be seen, you have to have people in your home, you have to be in their home, you have to be around them, you have to be engaging people, and you have to be vulnerable. Have you ever had any friends that are bulletproof? Like you ask these people, how are you doing? And they're like, I'm fine, everything's amazing. Next subject. Really? That sounds great. Like your leg is on fire and bleeding at the same time. What leg? I see no leg. Like these, these kind of bulletproof friends. Well, we have created a society that wants bulletproof elders. They don't hurt, they don't bleed, they don't cry. None of us cry though, I mean that's a real thing. And so as we engage in this, You you see, it it, it beckons us to put our guard down and to say, man, we hurt, we bleed, we fail. We are absolutely fallen. We're absolutely in need of God's grace. And that type of humility, that type of openness beckons other people to come into the relationship, to come into the circle because, hey, I can relate to this person. Why? Because he, he screws up too. He messes up too. I've spoken to his wife, the things he's willing to admit in the pulpit, but they don't even scratch the surface of the things he does at home. We're not creating people to be bulletproof. We're creating people who are examples in the example that elders give, the example that all of us should give to all those we have influence over is desperately pointing people to Jesus. Wake up every morning because of the grace of God present in my life. We go to sleep every night because of the grace of God covering us. We all have things at the end of the day we are not proud of that we need the forgiveness of God to cover We need to be open. We need to be transparent. And the example we need to show is not of people who have it all right, but who have found the one who does, the one who can save them, redeem them, and guide them. Be examples to the flock. Look what he calls their upward direction to look at, verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. He links back to chapter 1 and verse 4. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And so, too, he calls the elders and he says, look, the prime goal and directive for you is not a larger church. The prime call and directive for you is not a bigger church, nicer facilities. The prime call and directive for you is that when Jesus shows up, he would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And in that, in looking towards Christ's return and looking towards this, you will receive an unfading crown of glory bestowed on them by Jesus. You know, maybe you felt lonely in this. You're not an elder, you don't want to be. You don't know one, you don't want to. Let me just address you right here. Verse five, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders. You get one line. Be subject to the elders. 
this is a hard thing. I started on this, I focused on this. To be subject to somebody means in some sense to follow their leadership, and it kind of goes back to the same idea of trust. Do you trust? I'd be terrified this morning to take a poll and say, how many of you trust me? How many of you trust Ken, trust Dee, and trust Justin? Trust Philip. Trust those on the elder board, or we extend it to those two men not on the elder board, Steve Livingood, Mike Rackley. See, as you, as you look at it, there are some of you this morning that Philip ran over your foot in the parking lot, and you're still really angry with him about that. Leslie's just as sweet as can be, and you, you wouldn't, wouldn't think of harboring resentment towards her, but Philip, your foot, man, it still aches. Maybe they've said something to you or didn't say something to you. They didn't invite you over to their home. They didn't greet you in the hall. You know someone who used to work with them's cousin who lives in another county who told you a story and, and, and you choose to believe that story instead of engaging them. It's asking you to trust them. It's asking you to trust not just them in the decisions they make today, but the decisions they make in the future. It's asking you to trust that their relationship with Jesus is pursuing Their relationship with Jesus is is so completely tight that they are able to be an example to you. And I tell you, you can hang out with any of us for very long and some of us for a very short time, and we will fail you. We're going to fail. We're not going to be a good example. We're going to be a bad example. The overarching trajectory of our life should be such that it points you to Jesus. In our failure, we point you to Jesus. In our success, we point you to Jesus. In everything we do, everything we say, all the ways we live, it should be the overarching trajectory of our lives and the obligation for which we are willingly submitted ourselves is to point you to Jesus. So the trust we're asking you to give is not so much a trust to ourselves, but a trust to Jesus. Jesus, do you so desperately hold on to these men's hearts that so entrusting myself to you, I might submit myself to their leadership? Is Jesus trustworthy? Can he hold your heart? Can he secure your heart? Can he keep you safe as you move forward? He says, be subject to the elders. The author of Hebrews, addressing the same subject and expanding it a little bit, said in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Someday I'm going to have to give an, uh, an explanation before God on how I shepherded your soul, and so will every other man in this church who serves in the capacity as elder. All the times they fail you, it's not for you to keep that list and say, I'm going to let the air out of their tires five times until they make up for all the ways they failed me on this list. They will give an account before God for their failings. It's terrifying. It's terrifying, and hopefully it is assuring Hopefully it is assuring to you. Look what he does here. He unites both groups in these two clauses. You've got the elders, those who are to be exercising oversight, those who are to be leading, those who are to be examples, those who have submitted themselves fully to God, and then you have those rest of the people in the church spoken of as the younger Then he unites both of these groups in one, and he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. In this, he invites all of us, 
effectively to be unashamed of our failure together. Philippians 2, Paul writes in verses 3 and 4 of humility, and it's this beautiful example. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility in the church is me being captivated and caught up with furthering the gospel in your life and you being caught up and captivated with furthering the gospel in my life. And there's humility to that. There's none of us standing and saying, I know I'm the be all and end all. I know everything and so you should follow me. But there's this humble demonstration, this posture of humility, which is theirs in Jesus. And so it's the, it's the elders, it's the leadership coming forward in humility and saying, we don't know everything and in the direction we're leading you, we believe it's the direction God would have us. But we're not infallible. We're going to make mistakes. And it's the church body, it's the lady coming in and saying, we are willing to be a humble people. We are willing to be a led people. We are willing to be a people who would say, we forgive you. We're involved and invested in those around us. We're involved and invested in the leadership. Are you willing to be humble? Are you willing to join in that pursuit? He calls both laity and leadership to that pursuit, the pursuit of humility. And then he offers us this word of instruction out of Proverbs 3.34. And he says, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This grace which is able to produce humility in us, to help it thrive, to help this be a place where we're not primarily known as being a friendly church, but we're known as a humble body of people who willingly admit that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior still today. Not those who finally got it figured out after years of getting it wrong, but those who day by day, moment by moment, are in desperate need of Jesus. Amen? So he comes to us and he asks the leadership and the lady, will you be a people who would be humble towards one another? Would you be a people solely dependent upon God? Are we willing to be that people? Are we willing to be a people humble? Are we willing to be a people broken? Are we willing to be open and honest with one another to allow each other to walk in that humility and in so engage and glorify God? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, humility is a difficult road. It's a difficult task you call us to. recognize that humility is something in some sense that has to be recognized in us by someone else. It's not something we boast in. It's not something we are prideful. And in fact, being prideful, being boastful undoes the course, the trajectory of being humble, of evincing, displaying, emulating humility. So God, help us to be forgiving to one another when we fail in that pursuit. God, I pray that you'd help us to love one another in our failings, that the love of Jesus would flow through us onto one another. God, I pray that you would be with those who are serving as elder, that you would give to them wisdom, you would give to them compassion, you would help them recognize their failings, and God, that you would give them a church body, a flock, who would love them enough to tell them when they failed, to do so kindly and graciously. 
And God, I pray that you would give to us a laity here, a group of believers all passionately pursuing Jesus who would do so, endeavor in that, in humility, that they would never view their particular ministry, their emphasis as being best or most important, but in, the, in humility, God, they would consider others more significant, others' efforts, others' desires, others' ministries. And Father, we too pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to Jesus, him crucified, him resurrected, him ascended, the Son of God come who took on sin and death, who invites them to come and to receive forgiveness for their sins, to receive union by the power of your Holy Spirit. So God, we pray for them, that in humility you would help them to take the, take the first steps of belief. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.